Boston, December 16, 1845. Dear Sir, Your account of Monsieur Valdemar's case has been universally copied in this city and has created a very great sensation. It requires from me no apology in stating that I have not the least doubt of the possibility of such a phenomenon, for I did actually restore to active animation a person who died from excessive drinking of ardent spirits. He was placed in his coffin, ready for interment. Robert Hannam Collier was an English lecturer at a time when that term often implied a certain impresario talent that went hand in hand with the presenter's education and scholarship. In his adopted city of Boston, Collier would present to gathered crowds his experimental research on anesthesia, mesmerism, phrenology, and despite never graduating from London University, he sold himself as a professor of mesmerism and psychography. And yet, Collier was no simple shyster. His inventions included an insulation for telegraphy cables, a mechanism for breech-loading artillery. He published a series of books on everything from neural conditions to automatic writing, phrenomagnetism to vital photography. But despite, or perhaps because of, his devotion to these fringes of science, Collier was not immune to a hoax. The quote you just heard, in which Collier openly claims to have raised the dead, was taken from a letter he wrote to Edgar Allan Poe, responding to Poe's story, Facts in the Case of Monsieur Valdemar. Collier, like many, many other readers in the US, Canada, and Great Britain, was the victim of public uncertainty as to whether or not Poe's account of talking to the mesmerized dead could possibly be true. The account was, after all, first published with no indication that it was fiction, and Poe was well known for his scientific enthusiasm and a dislike of the organized academy. In a way, Poe was similar to Collier, a public intellectual, making money from a lecture here, a scientific review there, fascinated by the possibilities of the margins of human experience. What then were they to think? My name is Tom Stewart, and this is Liminalia, a podcast exploring the strange corners of fiction. No, I just keep pronouncing it Liminalia because it's a word that I made up. <laughs> so I'm sitting here with uh, Riley McDonald, my good friend and longtime collaborator. Riley and I worked on a previous podcast. Global smash <laughs> hit. <laughs> Hammer Time Horror. Was it just called Hammer Time? I, see, this is how this is how well, Let's just it check works. like what what is it titled on Broadway? Like um, when a star rises that quickly, you can't really catch it in a bottle, right? I personally disagreed with Nathan Lane being cast as Riley McDonald, but Andrew Garfield to play Tom Stewart was bang on the money. I was thinking David Hyde Pierce would have been perfect as both of us, one man show. Yeah, well, there you are. But that show collapsed due to tremendous creative differences and some pretty bad pay disputes. Yeah, and Nathan Lane actually learned something from the producers. No, I'm talking about you and me. You signed a non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> Why did we talk about the difficulty we had choosing a first story? Yeah, I mean, like, I imagine this is the case, especially for you, Tom, because this is your show. Uh, this isn't like what you and I were doing with Hammer Time, where like, no, there's an established 
catalog all you really need to do is select one or in our case not select one <laughs> um and you kind of go from there this one this podcast this idea is a more complicated one because because there's an actual project behind it and because that project kind of gets built in small parts with every story that you choose to talk about and in a sense the project is reasonably loose we want to talk about strange moments in genre fiction particularly weird horror sci-fi sci-fi fantasy gothic less prestige genres it's your field you're kind of making this thing up here as you go along and so figuring out where you want to plant your flag where you want to sort of start this project is a difficult one and so you and i spent a long time talking about what you should start off with, what would be the best representative way of kind of pushing the project out to sea. We ended up talking about a number of new weird fiction authors. Well, we wanted to get like the kids in on this. So like... <laughs> you need to be sexy. Everybody, you know, at the bars, at the clubs, they're like, play me that fat, sick Twin Peaks, David Lynch beat. Gotta hear the drop. Where's the drop? Jesus Christ. That was in itself Lynchian. <laughs> Julia Elliott was one that I was thinking of that would be a good author to talk about. But something like Alien Covenant, which just came out a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and, and these are all texts that we want to talk about, I think. We were also talking about what about Lovecraft, what about M.R. James, these kind of canonical authors. But these authors, uh, they have a whole podcasting community devoted to them already. Uh, people who've already done like significant work teasing out these stories and explaining how they tick, which isn't to say like Lovecraft and M.R. James and, and these other writers are completely off limits. Uh, I assume no. you're going to go to them oh, as well. Oh, eventually, pretty... yeah, certainly. So we eventually decided on Poe, a man for whom everything has already been said. Everybody already knows him. So we thought that was a good choice. Well, what's interesting about the choice, at least what I think is interesting, is that, you know, everybody knows the name Edgar Allan Poe. I'm sure everybody has either read The Raven or had The Raven read to them or at least seen The Simpsons episode. There's a familiarity with at least some elements of Edgar Allan Poe stuff. The House of Usher, um, the murders in the Rue Morgue, the Pit and the Pendulum, etc., etc. But... For a guy who only lived 40 years, he wrote a ton of stuff and... Very disparate and very diverse stuff. Everything from uh, horror stories and horror poetry to science fiction to comedy to essays on how to arrange your living room <laughs> and what is the most beautiful of landscapes to, Tom, you were telling me that Poe's most famous yeah, I'm gonna book get. in his lifetime was something I don't think any of us would guess... Yeah, Poe's most popular book, or at least his best-selling book, as I understand it, was actually The Conchologist's First Book, a book on conchology, recognizing seashells, um, which he adapted and compiled from Thomas Wyatt. That was his claim to fame at the time. I think the way that we have remembered Edgar Allan Poe is quite different from how people thought of him when he was alive. And there's also just so many of his short stories. They cover so much ground in terms of genre, in terms of style, in terms of theme and content. We all kind of think of Poe as being a sort of gothic, haunted house, spooky writer. But yeah, when dark romantic. Exactly. Which isn't to say he wasn't that. But in addition, he also wrote some just 
straight up strange material. A lot of comedy as well. And so I think why we eventually settled on facts in the case of Mr. Valdemar is that it's not one of his more famous stories, but it's maybe, I haven't read as much Poe as you have, Tom, so maybe you can correct me here, but for my money, it's the weirdest thing he ever wrote outside of maybe like his novel, Arthur Gordon Pym. This is utterly strange. And I think it also has the benefit of having a very strange printing history as well that we're going to get into. It is essentially strange because of how it was taken by people at the time and by people nowadays. So I think to begin with, we should get a basic synopsis of the story. Since you are the guest, do you want to summarize the story for us? Uh, Facts in the case of Mr. Valdemar is a story of a mesmerist, uh, and we'll talk about what mesmerism is in a moment, but for the time being, basically like hypnotist, doctor, we just know him as P, who is interested in seeing how far he can take his experiments. He is acquainted with a man named Valdemar, who is dying of tuberculosis. And so he basically convinces Valdemar to be his guinea pig in these experiments where he and a couple of his colleagues are going to try to suspend his animation at the moment of death and see what happens to his body and see what happens to his mind to see if P and his friends can get some kind of information about what happens after death. And the story is basically just a description of Valdemar slowly succumbing to his illness, and at the point of death, P is successful in mesmerizing his body and sort of putting him into a hypnotic trance, and he doesn't die. And this experiment, I suppose, is engaged in with no expectation as to what's going to happen. This is a very loose 19th century amateur scientician mode of understanding the world. They do succeed in mesmerizing Valdemar just at the point of death, and then we watch him slowly corrode over uh, seven months until finally he begs for release, And as soon as they bring him out of his trance, he dissolves completely into putrid, rotten flesh. As I rapidly made the mesmeric passes, amid ejaculations of dead, dead, absolutely bursting from the tongue and not from the lips of the sufferer, his whole frame at once, within the space of a single minute or even less, shrunk, crumbled, absolutely rotted away beneath my hands. Upon the bed, before that whole company, there lay a nearly liquid mass of loathsome, of detestable putridity. So lots of fun for the whole family, really. Uh, Well, Tom, you know I love to laugh. (laughs) It's, I mean, again, you kind of have this sort of cultural osmosis of who Edgar Allan Poe is and what kind of stories he writes. It's about death and corruption and decay. But Valdemar is very different from something like The Raven or The Fall of the House of Usher. Valdemar is extremely visceral. Like the descriptions of Valdemar's body as he rots without dying are are very striking. There's no golden curtains or giant libraries, ravens crowing out somebody's doom. This is a body horror form of the Gothic. Just to give you an example. The eyes rolled themselves slowly open, the pupils disappearing upwardly. The skin generally assumed a cadaverous hue, resembling not so much parchment as white paper and the circular, hectic spots which hitherto had been strongly defined in the center of each cheek went out at once. 
the upper lip, at the same time writhed itself away from the teeth which it had previously covered completely, while the lower jaw fell with an audible jerk, leaving the mouth widely extended and disclosing in full view the swollen and blackened tongue. This is not your daddy's Edgar Allan Poe. This is an extremely gruesome body horror. And this is probably off the mark, but even in like 19th century horror or gothic stories, I have a sense that a lot of the, the physical decay and degradation is kind of kept behind the curtain. Yeah, I would say that even today, this feels indulgent in more of the horror side of romanticism rather than the terror side. This is bringing you right down to bodily existence. It's a very sensual style of horror where we are focusing on the smell of a rotting corpse, on all of the gases and liquids that it is extruding, and, of course, on the soul that seems to be trapped somewhere inside this thing. I guess my question for you, Tom, to kind of turn it around on here is like, and again, you re you've read more stuff from this time period than I have. Does this feel excessive or gratuitous at all for you? Like, this is almost something you would expect and like, to bring it to where I come from, like <laughs> the streets, the streets, it feels like an 80s splatter horror movie more than it feels like fine literature. Yeah, if I had to imagine a director to bring this to the screen, I would think Peter Jackson. Or Stuart Gordon. Yeah, very much so. I'd never read Valdemar before. You'd actually told me about Valdemar yeah. a couple years ago, and I still wasn't fully prepared for this. It kind of caught me off guard. Like, I've read a fair, a fair amount of Poe, but this seemed like something totally different. Is it out of the ordinary for Poe? Is it out of the ordinary for the time? Does it feel crass? I think that this is not entirely out of the ordinary for Poe. If you think of some of the scenes in Rue Morgue, for example, where an ape invades an apartment and tears the scalp off a woman, there is this physical quality of the violence that can be done to a body that is central to how Poe imagines horror. I mean, that's interesting because, again, like, I guess something like, you know, Pit and the Pendulum is kind of about the body, but a lot of the other ones that I think of, The Raven, The Fall of the House of Usher, the Ma even The Mask of the Red Death, yeah. which is kind of about, you know, a plague. These are stories where it feels more abstract, the horror. It's about family dynasties. It's about sort of death in the abstract, like death as symbolized by the raven. Right. Who, is, who is always going to haunt your shoulder. And that's like, that's creepy, but it's not quite the same thing as having like an almost detailed description of a body decomposing in front of you. There's a very different kind of horror that is being evoked in this story and one that, that it almost gets to you uh, more quickly. Poe often said that he was writing not for the regular reader or the critic, but for the scholar, quote unquote. This story does not feel like that. This story feels like it was written for the... The uh, Herbert West scholar. <laughs> yes, I would say so. If this is intended for a scholar, in a way it is, because it's supposed to be a scientific text, but it is um, not the kind of scholar that I'd like to meet in a dark alley. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's interesting too, because we, we mentioned in our sort of plot synopsis that this is a story about a mesmerist because we often think of mesmerism as a sort of synonym for hypnotism yeah. but in the 19th century and right around the time Poe's writing he I think he wrote this story in 1845 and in the 1830s and 40s and 50s 
mesmerism was a kind of not universally but sort of popularly accepted science yeah it was a science it was also a form of philosophy or even holistic health and being because it had this whole theory attached to it as to animal magnetism which was supposed to link every living being and particularly the thoughts of individual humans um it's named after a german named franz anton mesmer who basically said like inside each body is a sort of fluid magnet that with proper training you could control um at, at the time when poe is writing this in the 1840s mesmerism which had sort of originated in europe had come to america as a kind of philosophy science and a sort of homeopathic he was the gwyneth paltrow of the day if you can imagine what goop does now that's <laughs> what mesmer was at the time so mesmerism is also kind of like the humor's theory of a few centuries before where you have four substances in the body black bile yellow bile blood and the other one it's maggie and if they're out of balance that's what causes disease Mesmer thought that if this magnetic force in the body was out of balance, that's what would cause illness. And so basically mesmerism was a way to tap into that magnetic force. And with a sort of one weird trick, you could manipulate the body to try and heal it from its illnesses. Doctors hated him. Um, they really did. <laughs> they actually uh, did. Because yeah. they thought he was a dangerous <laughs> quack. And he was. And this was a widely accepted practice on the fringes of science. Basically, mesmerism is similar to hypnotism as it sort of developed. The way it worked was you tried to put a patient in a trance and then you would basically wave your arms all over his or her body. Uh, in fact, it was often her. According to my research, like the people who practice magnetism were most often men and the patients were popularly women. And so you would try to sort of manipulate the body and sort of move the magnetic force around while this person was under your control. It was a time when there was a... A uh, great deal of scientific investigation into immortality, ghost sightings, uh, the various paranormal experiences that have been today debunked for a very, very long time were at that time part of an amateur interest in science and a belief that if only we could take these things seriously and if only we could find the right way to experiment, science would shine a light on these experiences and provide an explanation. Mesmerism was at the heart of this scientific positivism, this philosophy that will be able to understand everything. And because of that, mesmerism was opened up to some crazy stuff. Clairvoyance was introduced into the English language because of mesmerism. There was a belief that those that were in a trance could tap into the animal magnetism just floating around in the universe, and they would be able to tell you information that they themselves did not know. Um, there's also a moment in this story where Valdemar, being in a trance, has his arm lifted up by P the doctor and the narrator of the story just waving his arm over top of it. So there was telekinetics involved in this. There was psychic belief. This was very strange science. So if I can, uh, again, ask you a question here, Tom, because I don't know, and perhaps you do. Did Poe buy this, or is this story purely making fun of it? That's one of the issues with Poe, is that it is very difficult to tell. Poe certainly was heavily invested in the popularity of this. I will go that far. Because he used mesmerism multiple times over the course of his career, most notably in The Tale of the Ragged Mountains, Mesmeric Revelation, and then, of course, the facts in the case of Monsieur Valdemar, to not only boost his readerly following, but 
more importantly, to kind of get his own strange philosophies across, particularly in Mesmeric Revelation, which is very much a draft one of this story, where Valdemar here doesn't say anything other than, I am dead, and we can get back to that. There, Mesmeric Revelation invests so heavily into the idea of clairvoyance, almost a form of astral projection, that it becomes just this extremely dry philosophy text, where P the narrator, is discussing the oncoming death of another character, V, while V is under a trance, and V ends up giving this very long treatise about the nature of materiality, how we are to understand God, what the soul of the universe looks like. It gets into some very Doctor Strange territory. So it's... It is the experience of someone explaining their dream quest of Unknown Kadath to you. <laughs> With just uh, about as much length and editing. The reason why I asked you that question about whether or not Poe believes in mesmerism is that based on just having read the story, he seems pretty skeptical of the practitioners. P strikes me as a ethically compromised dude. He wants to find someone who is willing to, you know, basically submit to this experiment. Okay, fair enough. And almost like trawls through his address book until he finds a friend of his that is dying. And specifically a friend of his who is dying has no and relations. has no relations yeah. who would get in the way of his experiment. Yeah, and then P and all his rowdy friends just kind of move into Valdemar's apartment and watch him waste away with a, an extremely sort of clinical and cold detachment. And it definitely seems like, even though it brings about results within the context of the story, these guys come off as seeming like pretty shady characters. Yeah, I think that central to the story itself is this profound questioning as to how we go about the scientific method, how we go about finding knowledge and the ethical practices of amateur scientism. It seems from his biography that Poe was predominantly a fan of amateur scientism, was largely due to his kind of rebellious character against the academy and the professionalization of science that was occurring at the time. But this story itself seems like not scientific amateurism, but scientific amateur hour. The <laughs> Yeah, the most Notable thing for me is that, as P says at the end of the story, like they ha they basically keep Valdemar's body with his spirit or soul or consciousness or whatever trapped in inside this like rotting carcass for seven months for no reason. He goes in kind of every day and asks him the same question. Monsieur Valdemar, are you asleep? Pretty much every day and just kind of interrogates this corpse. Monsieur Valdemar. I use them for information about what his experiences are. It, it ends up, it feels very damning or very skeptical about the ethics of this kind of practice. P and his colleagues seem predatory and that they have no interest in the kind of comfort or really in the life or afterlife, I guess, of Valdemar. Like, he is entirely secondary to them. He's their conduit through which they get information. And it is very unclear as to how exactly we're supposed to feel about this narrator because the only letter that we have with which to identify him is P. Like, he's clearly supposed to be a stand-in for Poe. A lot of the narrators in Edgar Allan Poe's texts are. And so for him to insert himself in the story in such a ambivalent or even malignant character is very strange. It makes me wonder if perhaps we are looking at this with 21st century eyes, but at the same time, the 
indulgence and disgust of what they do to this corpse would seem to be a real criticism of how science is done at that time, shall we say, or at least fringe science. So, Tom, throughout this episode, maybe you've cut all the references at this point, but... Um, I completely cut you out of this. <laughs> you've kind of referred to Valdemar, the story, as a hoax text. Can you explain what you're saying there? Because uh, <laughs> I was the, when I read this story, when I walked into your house, when I spent like the last half hour talking about this, I was assuming <laughs> it was a short story, which it is. But like, yeah. what do you mean when you call it a hoax text? Okay, so a lot of Edgar Allan Poe's stuff was written, um, particularly some of his more famous texts were written to convince readers that they were actually... They'd actually happened. Yeah, that they'd actually happened. The Gold Bug would be a good example. The Murders in the Rue Morgue, which starts off with this prolonged essay, uh, which mimics very much the style of essays that Poe was writing at the time before moving into an account of a murderous ape, where the narrator is consistently linked to Edgar Allan Poe. Mesmeric Revelations, which we've already mentioned, where the narrator is assigned the letter P. What links these stories together is that he is combining a number of different forms of writing into this weird form of journalism that is fiction, but seems to be something that could be real. So, sorry to jump in here, but potentially when people were reading Valdemar when it came out, they were reading it as though it were an account of something that happened, rather than like, as we read it now in our collection of the tales of Edgar Allan Poe, we know it's fiction. People sort of, at least, were encouraged to treat this as being non-fictional. Yeah, as being a, a record of a scientific experiment that went on. In fact, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the famous poet, actually ended up getting in touch with Edgar Allan Poe, commending him on the story and mentioning repeatedly in the letter how unsettled the British public was reading this text because of how many people took it seriously as something that had actually happened. Then there is a tale of yours, which is going the round of the newspapers about mesmerism, throwing us all into a most admired disorder and dreadful doubts as to whether it can be true, as the children say of ghost stories. The certain thing in the tale in question is the power of the writer and the faculty he has of making horrible improbabilities seem near and familiar. There's another great story murders in the room morgue which is an extremely bizarre text and not one that i could see anybody taking seriously it was translated and printed as an actual news item in a number of french newspapers before edgar Allan poe got wind of this and had them stop i find that really interesting especially because what struck me again when i was reading this i had no idea that people were taking this as anything other than a fictional story because this story is entirely about the inability to tell a story uh, so the story starts with P basically doing damage control. He says this. Uh, should I read it or should I just gloss it? You can radiolab it in or... Yup. Of course, I shall not pretend to consider it any matter for wonder that the extraordinary case of Monsieur Valdemar has excited discussion. It would have been a miracle had it not, especially under the circumstances. Through the desire of all parties concerned to keep the affair from the public, at least for the present, or until we had farther opportunities for investigation through our endeavors to effect this, a garbled or exaggerated account made its way into society and became the source of many unpleasant misrepresentations. And very naturally, 
of a great deal of disbelief. It is now rendered necessary that I give the facts, as far as I comprehend them myself. They are, succinctly, these. So, we get almost a preamble from our narrator saying, look, people are hearing rumors about these creepy experiments that me and my buddies have been doing, uh, and I'm here to set the record straight so the public doesn't misconstrue our honorable scientific intentions. It seems very like I need to cover for myself, but it also is about who's in charge of telling this sort of fantastical story. Yeah, no, I fully agree with that. And I think that opening is actually ingenious for a hoax text as well. It creates a sensation, one that perhaps the reader wasn't aware of. At the heart of it, though, I think that that control of the story is attempting to control a story that ends up not being told. Really, they're sending Valdemar into death, hoping that he's going to tell them something about the experience of death, about the experience of being dead, and the experience ends up being unnarratable. Exactly. This is what, after, you know, Valdemar has died and they've preserved his consciousness through this mesmerism. They keep asking him what's going on. And finally they get a response and he says this. Yes. No. I have been sleeping and now, now I am dead. And that's really all the information they can get out of him. And that's sort of what I find incredibly fascinating about this story is that it's not Valdemar explaining the vistas beyond death, like the hellfires or the magnificent whiteness of heaven or some kind of alien landscape. What makes this story weird is that you have somebody speaking from beyond the grave and saying, there is nothing from beyond the grave. There's nothing here. And so I can't say anything more than I am dead because there's nothing more to narrate. Yeah, and I think this speaks to Valdemar's final panicked request at the very end of the story when he says, For God's sake, quick, quick, put me to sleep, or quick, waken me, quick, I say to you that I am dead. This assertion of the essential wrongness of being in this trance-like state, of being awake in death. He wants to either be asleep or be released from this trance. Something has to happen. How he is existing is untenable, is horrible, for some reason that we cannot understand, that he cannot narrate to us, and is fundamentally unethical on a scientific front. And really, Valdemar should be the one who could narrate this. Out of anybody that they could have chosen, he should be the one. He's figured in a very Poe-esque style, with these kind of jokes and allusions from the beginning of being this person who is kind of in a liminal state at all times. He's got shockingly black hair, but he's got a white mustache. He is a professional translator. He translates European texts into English. He lives in Harlem, which was at this time a kind of liminal area between the urban city of New York and the farmland. It was a kind of Irish shantytown. Geographically, personally, physically, he is figured as this border identity who should be able to translate and bring forward what is translatable, who, who is kind of figured even when they enter in the room before they put him under a mesmeric trance as being half dead but still vital. When the doctor finally shows up to put him under a trance, this is how he describes him. 
The emaciation was so extreme that the skin had been broken through by the cheekbones. His expectoration was excessive. The pulse was barely perceptible. He retained, nevertheless, in a very remarkable manner, both his mental power and a certain degree of physical strength. He spoke with distinctness, took some palliative medicines without aid, and, when I entered the room, was occupied in penciling memoranda in a pocketbook. So right up to the end, he's writing down his experiences, but he looks like a corpse. His skull is bursting through his cheeks, and he's drooling, which is a very clear foreshadowing, or perhaps even forecast, as to what's going to happen at the end of the story. So if there was ever an ideal candidate for this experiment, it's him. He doesn't even have any family to look out for him. Okay, but I'm rambling on for long enough. I think we should get down to a really important question for this story. Given that it is at once a hoax, a short story is printed as science at the time, has been reprinted as science fiction, has occasionally been included in gothic collections. How are we to read this? What genre would this be considered? Or what genre would you consider this? The interesting thing about Monsieur Valdemar the story is that you can't really reduce it down to one. And, and so that's why I think, you know, this ends up being the sort of perfect inaugural text for Liminalia, because it doesn't fit comfortably into any one of these genres. No, it really doesn't. It's exploring all of these different styles, some that don't even exist really yet, like what we would call weird fiction now. And I, I think this fits into weird fiction, the very limit points of uh, what we can understand about the universe. Yeah. You know, that as a term doesn't really come into use until the 20th century, I don't think, or the late 19th century, long after Poe had died. Yeah, I, I think there's a really good argument to say that this is kind of a weird science text. Like, this is on the weird end of science fiction or on the science fiction end of weird literature. I think also there's an argument to be made that this is a gothic text, that this is a text that is fundamentally interested in the breakdown of the human body, in the repression of death in the systems of control that are science. These are all things that 19th century Gothic was super interested in. You know, this story feels right at home in the lineage of mad science that goes from, you know, Frankenstein to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to Herbert West, her West reanimator, the greatest movie ever made. Uh, I don't know um, if I can get on board with that. And, and what I like about all of those stories is that they seem to be doing that liminal project of bringing science to its breaking point or bringing the sort of fantastical to its uh, borderland as well and seeing how these overlap. I think any sort of mad science text or movie or, or video game or whatever is ultimately building on this thing. And I think Valdemar, the story, not the guy, fits in really well with this kind of method of storytelling. What the sort of mad scientist style or subgenre or whatever you want to call it does, I think, is not just act as a sort of cautionary or warning tale about science gone rogue. What I think it really does is say, isn't science itself creepy? Because in stories like Valdemar or Frankenstein or whatever, it's not like, you know, in something like Faust, where a scientist learns all he can in science, and so he has to call up the devil to get more, <laughs> more good stuff. It's that these guys are right that science leads them down very dark corridors that people are not fully prepared to handle or to um, talk about. Yeah, the mad scientist character is essentially pointing out that science is a movement toward what is unknown. 
and that necessarily in what is unknown there are going to be some truths that we are not going to be comfortable with, that we are going to be led, perhaps uh, seduced, into doing things that we are not currently comfortable with, and that in order to pursue this knowledge, we are going to be corroding what we essentially think of as the righteousness of science as a project. So ultimately, if we were going to limit this just to one genre, I think that you would actually do some damage to what is really interesting about this story. What makes it so fascinating is the fact that it sits at the border of all of these different genres, even scientific record. Is there anything else you wanted to add, Tom, or should we wake ourselves up from this trance? Oh, God. I... Um, I think that right there is a sign that we ought to bring this to a close. I think the last question, and an important question, is if we were to suggest a further reading, what should that be? If people liked the facts in the case of Monsieur Valdemar... Or if you haven't read the story, but what we talked about here sounded interesting... What could we suggest as another reading to go with this? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Um... The first thing that comes to my mind would be H.P. Lovecraft's story, Beyond the Wall of Sleep. That is a deep pull. Well, I think like, so Valdemar is not the first story that comes to people's minds when they're thinking about Poe. That's a good point. Likewise, Lovecraft is very much in the style of what I think this podcast is trying to do, but Beyond the Wall of Sleep is not a particularly well-known Lovecraft story. And I, it, it's got kind of a similar... Um, vibe as uh, Monsieur Valdemar. It is just as strange as Monsieur Valdemar. Yeah, it's about a guy who's in a mental institution um, and he convinces his doctor that he knows how to like astral project. Like when he goes to sleep, he sees the world as it really is full of these like strange beings of light and all this kind of crazy otherworldly stuff. And so the doctor builds like a super uh, lo-fi, uh, <laughs> low, like a super low-tech dream machine which i think is just like a colander uh, with, with like some wires with some wires it. in it to be able to experience the same kind of dreams that his patient has and then craziness ensues from there so i think it's in very much in that similar spirit so that'd be my recommendation yeah that one ends as i recall with a star soul getting eaten in a galaxy far far away so i think that perfectly encapsulates the absolute craziness of some of Poe's weird science. No, I was picking this as a as a science factual story. Oh. Oddly enough, I was also thinking of a text that was set in an insane asylum, ultimately. I think Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, one of the first really successful horror films, works really well if you like Facts in the Case of Monsieur Valdemar. It doesn't have the same body horror to it, but it does have a very odd portrayal of bodies. It is German Expressionist horror at its best, and it is specifically centered around sleep-waking, which is the mesmeric trance in which people are willed to do things. The film centers on a traveling circus show in which Dr. Caligari shows a series of freaks. One of them is a sleepwalker or sleepwaker named Cesar, played by Conrad Veidt, who is amazing oh, and everything. Guy. When the circus closes for the night, however, in whichever town they are in, Dr. Caligari will send Cesar out to murder, pillage, uh, rob, uh, do any kind of mischief he can. So it is a very strange movie. It is based around mesmerism, it has the same odd tone or atmosphere that you would find in something like Valdemar, just something where the regular world seems just slightly off in a hallucinogenic sort of way. 
So I think that about wraps it up for the first episode. Thank you very much for being a part of this with me, Riley, and having the patience to sit through the first episode. Uh, thank you, Tom, for letting me be your guinea pig. Um... <laughs> If you, as a listener, have any suggestions as to a story that we should read, something that you think would fit in well with what we're doing here, please get in contact with us. We're on Twitter at LiminaliaCast, and you can get in contact with us by email at LiminaliaCast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to our first episode. Tune in next time for another guest and another anxiously chosen story. My name's Tom Stewart. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Stewart, that's me. You heard from all three of us this episode with readings by Natalie Lee, Riley McDonald, and myself. Liminalia's theme is Funny Bones and Lazy Legs, provided by Exploding Plastics. The rest of the tracks on this episode have been provided by Wormwood. More information, including track listings, can be found in the episode description. 